following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, this morning we want to pick up our study of the doctrines of grace, perhaps more commonly known as the five points of Calvinism. To understand how and why this system we know as Calvinism came to bear this title and eventually become known by these five points, we have to go back to Holland in the early 1600s, where a major theological battle began. In 1609, James Arminius, who was a Dutch seminary professor, died, and a year later, his students drew up five articles of faith that captured the heart of James Arminius' teachings. His students, who became known as the Arminians, went on to present these five doctrines to the state of Holland in the form of a heated protest, or a remonstrance, as they called it. Since the churches of Holland in that day, for the most part, held to the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession, articles of faith that really exalt the sovereignty of God, humble the lofty pride of man, and capture the heart of what would eventually become known as Reformed theology. Well, the Armenians strongly opposed and objected key doctrines with this, within this catechism and within this confession. Specifically, those doctrines in these confessions relating to God's sovereignty and man's moral inability and unconditional election and particular redemption and irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints. They opposed these things. Arminius' students wanted to see major change of belief within the churches of Scotland. The five points of Arminianism, as they would later be called, that were brought forth in this protest were as follows. Number one, human free will. Although man is fallen, he is not entirely incapacitated by the fall, and so he can freely choose to repent and believe in Christ on his own. His will is not enslaved to his sinful nature, and although he needs the Holy Spirit to convict him and illuminate his mind, at the end of the day, the sinner's faith is exercised independently of God. Number two, conditional election. God elects or rejects sinners on the basis of his foreknowledge. He knows before time how they will respond to the gospel in time. And that becomes the basis of his choice. God chose sinners because they first chose him. Number three, unlimited atonement. Jesus died to make salvation possible for all people without exception, although only those who believe will be saved. 
Number four, resistible grace. Sinners can ultimately resist and overthrow the Holy Spirit's grace and influence in drawing sinners to repentance and faith in Christ. And number five, eternal security or insecurity, as I would call it. This last article at the time of the protest, 1610, was still under further investigation by the Arminians. However, later it was revised so as to teach the possibility of a genuine born-again believer losing his or her salvation and perishing in hell. Today, Arminians still disagree with one another on this point. Well, in analyzing this system of doctrine set forth in the Arminian protest, J.I. Packer observes this, quote, Number one, man is never so completely corrupted by sin that he cannot savingly believe the gospel when it is put before him. Nor, number two, is he ever so completely controlled by God that he cannot reject it. Number three, God's election of those who shall be saved is prompted by his foreseeing that they will of their own accord believe. Number four, Christ's death did not, secu- did not ensure the salvation of anyone, for it did not secure the gift of faith to anyone. There is no such gift. What it did was rather to create a possibility of salvation for everyone if they believe. And number five, it rests with believers to keep themselves in a state of grace by keeping up their faith. Those who fail here fall away and are lost. Thus, Arminianism made man's salvation depend ultimately on man himself, saving faith being viewed throughout as man's own work and because his own, not God's in him. Close quote. Well, eight years after this protest, in the year 1618, a national synod or assembly was called in the city of Dort to examine the teachings of the Armenians. And after seven months and 154 sessions of comparing the teachings of the Armenians with the testimony of the word of God, the assembly unanimously rejected the five points of Arminianism. However, they insisted that a mere rejection of these teachings was not enough. They felt the need to spell out with even greater clarity than that in the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism, the matters that the Arminians had called into question. Well, they did that. And as a result, we now have the five points of Calvinism, a name derived from the famous French reformer, John Calvin, who was known for expounding and defending these views about a hundred years before all of this happened. And so the five points of Calvinism or the doctrines of grace were not drawn up one day by John Calvin, nor were they randomly put down on paper by those who followed in the footsteps of John Calvin. They originated as a response, as a counter to the unbiblical teachings that the followers of James Arminius had formulated and presented to the state of Holland in the form of a protest. And it's both fascinating and heartbreaking that what the Synod of Dort, 
an assembly of brothers who held to the rich theology of the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgian Confession that what they rejected as heretical in the 1600s has gained wide acceptance in the church today. In fact, the tables have turned, haven't they? Who are the minority who are put on trial for their beliefs today? It's what we would call the Calvinists. For example, if you talk a lot about God's sovereignty and his right to reserve mercy for whom he wills and his right to harden whom he wills, you're immediately flagged. If you express low views of man as being radically depraved and hopelessly helpless and morally unable to repent and believe on his own because of his own enslavement to sin and because of his own love affair with sin, you're looked upon with suspicion. If you speak of Christ dying to redeem his bride, his people, his church, his flock, you're flagged. If you say anything negative about man's allegedly free will and exult in the freeness of faith and repentance as gifts that God sovereignly grants to his people, or if you affirm that regeneration is the cause and not the result of saving faith, you definitely won't fall in line with the majority today. Well, this wasn't always the case. Speaking of this era in the 1600s, one author and historian writes it like this, quote, The vast majority of the Protestant theologians of that day took a much different view of the matter. They maintained that the Bible set forth a system of doctrine quite different from that advocated by the Arminian party. Salvation was viewed by the members of the synod as a work of grace from beginning to end. In no sense did they believe that the sinner saved himself or contributed to his salvation. Adam's fall had completely ruined the race. All men were by nature spiritually dead and their wills were in bondage to sin and Satan. The ability to believe the gospel was itself a gift from God bestowed only upon those whom he had chosen to be the objects of his unmerited favor. It was not man but God who determined which sinners would be shown mercy and saved. This, in essence, is what the members of the Synod of Dort understood the Bible to teach. End quote. And so here we are, 404 years later, on the other side of the world from where all that took place, taking the time to understand the doctrines of grace, not as doctrines invented by devious men who wanted to see the church divided, but as the sweet teachings that drip from the honeycomb of God's word. Why are we doing it? Because it's important for us to understand the doctrine of salvation as God has revealed it in his word. And that's essentially what the doctrines of grace or the five points of Calvinism are about. The doctrine of salvation. We live in a day when salvation has been cheapened and stripped of its God-adorned beauty and glory. Christians pay lip service to God as their Savior, but in their hearts they believe that their salvation is ultimately owing to their will and their choice. And so what man needs most, according to so many that would call themselves Christians today, is a little bit of help from God to get right with him. 
a push from the Holy Spirit to decide to believe in Jesus. For God to just provide a way of salvation because their mighty free wills can do the rest. God, if you do the providing, we'll do the rest. If you lead me to the waters of salvation, I'll decide if I'm going to drink. All we need, according to many, is a provider, not a savior. One who, like a rescue worker in a helicopter dropping down a lifeline to drowning people, simply provides a way of salvation. Well, friends, as I trust you know from this pulpit, if you've been here a good amount of time, the Bible does not portray fallen man as drowning in the ocean of sin, who simply needs a heavenly lifeline to be dropped down to him from heaven so that he can do the rest. You throw down the rope, God, and I'll climb. Ever since the fall, humanity isn't drowning. Humanity is what? Dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. Rather than treading water and about to drown, humanity is at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, dead without hope. Sinners don't need a lifeline dropped down to them. We need a Savior who will plunge the depths of the ocean floor, seek out our bloated corpses, take us up in his arms, and bring us back to the shore and back to life. And that's exactly what we have in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In our last study, we considered the harmony of the Trinity in the work of salvation and how it's utterly impossible for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to have different intentions as it relates to salvation. We saw that the Father chose many and not all. And therefore, the Son came in obedience to his Father to give his life as a ransom for many and not all. And we know that the Spirit of God will call and will regenerate all those and only those whom the Father chose and the Son paid for. Trinitarian harmony within salvation. The Bible knows nothing of the Father choosing to save some and then the Son coming regardless of the Father's choice and he dies for all. And then the Spirit trying to influence and nudge as many people as he can to try to follow Jesus. That's not the God of the Scriptures. And that's not biblical salvation. It might be American salvation, but it's not the salvation portrayed in the pages of the Old and New Testaments. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are perfectly united in both their saving intentions and in their saving actions. What the Father wills is what the Son wills, and what the Son wills is what the Spirit wills. And since, number one, the Bible teaches that the Father has chosen to save a particular people and not the entire human race, and number two, since the Bible teaches that the Son came to die in the place of those same people, we know, thirdly, that the Spirit will come and has come to awaken and regenerate all those and only those who have been chosen by the Father and redeemed by the Son. Hence, our salvation is Trinitarian. 
While each person of the Trinity performs distinct functions in the work of salvation, the Father choosing, the Son redeeming, the Spirit regenerating, they nevertheless work in perfect harmony with one another, having the same saving intentions and eternal purposes. To suggest anything else is to attack the very unity of the Trinity. This is why every attack Every assault on the Son's particular redemption of His peculiar people is an attack on the Father's unconditional election of the many. If you can prove, in other words, from the Bible, that the Father has chosen to save some and not all, then you cannot insist that the Son came to die in the place of all. Because the Father and the Son are on the same page as we say it today. Nor can you say that the Father's choice in election is based upon the Son dying in the place of all and then seeing who would, from the human race, respond to the Son's sacrifice. Some people try to get around it that way. That the Father's choice is based upon how people would respond to the Son's sacrifice. So the Son determines to go And the father says, well, I choose whoever will respond to you. That's not how it works. That's not the order the Bible presents. The son doesn't come of his own will to save everyone. And then the father follows suit and chooses to save those who will respond to the son's saving initiative. No, the son, as we saw last time, came according to the father's eternal purpose of election. He came down from heaven, not to do his own will, but to do the will of him who sent him, John 6, 38. He came to die and rise and then give eternal life to all those and only those whom the Father had previously given him in election, John 17, 2. Do you remember the order that we looked at in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10? says this, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Did you get that? He saved us according to a purpose that he had. What was that purpose? To save us. Salvation and calling are the result of God purposing, planning, scheming to save us. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This grace was given to us before the ages began. Before there was a universe. God had chosen you, believer. He chose to show you his grace and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see the order? God's purpose of election, according to which he saves and calls, that purpose of election is what sends the Son into the world. That purpose to glorify the glory of his grace is what sends the Son into the world, not the other way around. God gave us grace before the ages began, and as a result of that, Christ appeared to abolish death and bring life to his people. The father chooses to save a people, and as a result, the son comes to lay down his life for those same people. 
The unity of the Trinity demands a particular redemption. Well, with the remainder of our time this morning, I want to continue to unpack the doctrine of particular redemption by considering with you the divine purpose behind the cross work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The divine purpose behind the cross work of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, I want you to consider what God actually intended to accomplish by the death of his son and then what our Savior actually accomplished by his death. In other words, you can't consider or come to a conclusion regarding the extent of his death, who he died for, without first considering the intent of Christ's death, what God intended to accomplish through the death of his son. We know that whatever God intends to do, he does it, right? Whatever God purposes to do, he does it. Whatever he wills to accomplish, will be accomplished. That's why I began this series by seeking to unpack the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty. Remember Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, where God says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Now listen, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. If God has a purpose, it will be accomplished. That's a non-negotiable in the Bible. Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And then finally, Job chapter 42, verse 2. Job, after all that he went through and he's brought to repentance, brought to have a fresh glimpse of God in his majesty and God in his power and God in his glory. He says this to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No purpose of yours can be frustrated. No purpose of yours can be unraveled. And so we're asking the vital question this morning. What was God's purpose for the death of his son? Because whatever that purpose was and whatever that purpose is, it will be accomplished. It won't be thwarted. It won't be frustrated. God's will and purpose for the death of Christ will come to pass. And so the question must be asked, was God's purpose behind the death of his son simply to make salvation possible for all people? Was it to make a way for all to be saved? Or was it to actually save and redeem and reconcile a people for himself? Was it to save us or was it to make us savable? What did God intend for the cross 
to achieve? What was his aim for the death of his son? Was it simply to make salvation available and possible for all? Much like a rescue worker on a helicopter drops a lifeline down to drowning people. Is the atonement, is the cross, is the redeeming work of God the Son on Calvary's tree a kind of heavenly lifeline that God drops down for any and all who would choose to make use of it? Does the Bible describe the death of Christ in merely provisional language? Do sinners need a mere provision? Or do they actually need to be sought and saved? Did God intend merely to provide salvation by the cross? That's the heart of Arminianism. That's the heart of this modern-day provisionism popularized by Leighton Flowers. Or did God actually intend to save and redeem and reconcile sinners through the cross? How do you understand our Savior's cry? It is finished. In your mind, does that mean redemption provided? Or does that mean redemption accomplished? The price is paid. Not the price has been made available. The price is paid. There are two options proceeding from those who hold to a universal atonement, who say that Christ died for all without exception. The first option is universalism. All will be saved. Either all people who have ever lived or all people from the time of Christ's death until the end of the age will be saved. He died for all. All must be saved. No one wants to claim that one. There's a second option. It says this. If he died for all, but not all are saved, then his death is insufficient. It's inadequate to save everyone. It was for everyone, but doesn't actually save everyone. It's lacking. God intended to save everyone, he sent Jesus to die for everyone, but the sacrifice was insufficient. The sacrifice was inadequate. Well, to get around this, both Arminians and those who are provisionists will say something like this. Well, the death of Christ is universal in the sense that God provided salvation for all who would choose to make use of it. It's sufficient for all, but it's efficient only to those who believe. Sufficient for all, efficient for those who believe. It's universal in that by it, God made a way for everyone to be saved. That's key language within these circles. Made a way, opened a door, provided a means, made possible. Of course, there's one proof text they all run to. John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might, might not perish, but have eternal life. Not realizing that might isn't there in the Greek. That it's not a, a whoever like God says, well, I don't know who's going to do it. So whoever believes, no, God knows who's going to believe because he's decreed who's going to believe. He's chosen who will believe. So it's not whoever, it's literally all those 
so that all those who believe would not perish but have eternal life. Now, I want to persuade you today that that conclusion, that Christ came to die for all in order to provide a way for all to be saved, that's unbiblical and that's unacceptable. And I'm presenting this to you today, not because I want to be the guy that stands out and says, "Uh uh-uh, he didn't die for you. Or, "Uh uh-uh, he didn't die for everyone. That's not my intention here. My intention and your intention in getting passionate about who he died for is ultimately to safeguard the saving efficacy of the son's sacrifice. We want to uphold it as perfectly sufficient. Oh, perfect redemption, lacking in nothing. It doesn't need man's final touches to activate its power. It doesn't need man's saving faith to realize God's saving purposes. No, it's perfect. Perfect. To reach the conclusion that he died simply to make salvation possible for all, you have to project something into the Bible that simply is not there. And what is it? It's the belief that God's purpose behind the cross was merely to provide salvation for all and any who would choose to accept it. mere provision. If you do that, you reject God's purpose for the cross of Christ as it's revealed in the Bible and you insert what you think God's purpose was. You disregard, in other words, God's intent for the atonement and replace it with what you believe God's intent for the atonement was. And so we ask the question this morning, what was God's intention behind the cross of Christ? What was his purpose behind the atonement? Was it to provide salvation for any and all who would choose to accept it? Or was it to accomplish salvation for all those and only those whom he determined to save? The way you answer that question has massive implications to how you understand the doctrine of salvation and how you will share the gospel. How many times have you heard people describe the gospel, explain the gospel, the work of Christ in terms like this? Jesus died to make a way for us to be saved. Hence the song, Waymaker. And you are Waymaker, Miracle Worker, Promise Keeper, Light in the Darkness. My God, that is who you are. You made a way. Or, how many of you heard people or even said things like, well, God sent Jesus to provide a means of salvation. Or Jesus died to open the door to heaven. Or Jesus died to be the bridge to eternal life. Or he died to make salvation available. How many times have you heard that or even yourself said similar things? Or with regard to prayer. How many of you have prayed, God, thank you for making a way for us to go to heaven. Thank you for providing a means to be saved. Well, let me tell you, those aren't bad statements. They're not bad prayers, but they're insufficient. They don't go far enough. Without realizing it, many have changed the very nature of the atonement, making it provisional versus salvific because they fail to understand the divine intent and purpose for the atonement. And so what do the scriptures teach us regarding God's purpose behind the atonement of his son? 
Because we know that whatever his purpose is and was, it will be accomplished. It will be accomplished. God's purposes and plans always come to pass, and they cannot be thwarted. And so I have two questions this morning. Number one, what was the divine purpose behind the death of Christ? And here's the first purpose. Number one, to save. To save. As opposed to make everyone savable. There's a difference. It was to go down to the bottom of the ocean and bring our bloated corpses up and raise us to life. It was not to simply throw down a lifeline from a helicopter and we could, you know, swim our way to it and climb up and do the rest. It was to save. Matthew 1, 21, his name will be called Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. It doesn't say anything about he will provide a means. He will make it a possibility. He will make it available. He will save his people from their sins. Luke 19.10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's why he came. 1 Timothy 1.15, This is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Nothing about provision, nothing about possibilities, nothing about making a way or opening a door. He came into the world to save sinners. Number two, what was his purpose behind, what was God's purpose behind the cross of Christ? Not only to save, but to redeem, to ransom. Matthew 20, 28 says, the son of man came not to serve or to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It doesn't say he came to make men ransomable. He came to actually pay a price for many. One scholar commenting on that verse says, quote, the term ransom translates the Greek term lutron. It was a word that originated in practices of warfare where the lutron, the ransom, was the price that was paid to bring a prisoner of war out of captivity. Both in the Greek translation of the Old Testament and in the Greek New Testament, the term was associated with practices of atonement and redemption, specifically because Scripture describes man's predicament in sin as slavery and captivity. Our sin holds us in bondage, and so the Son of Man has come into the world with the intention that many who are enslaved to sin may be released into the freedom of salvation through the giving of his life as the substitutionary lutron, the ransom price to be paid for them. There is no word here about Christ coming to make these slaves redeemable. Nothing about providing for the possibility of their release. Christ's intention is that the ransom price of his blood will actually free the captives for whom he pays. Close quote. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom, a lutron for all. For all. How do we understand that? Well, we understand the extent of that language by the nature of ransom. If he paid the ransom price for all, then all 
will be released from their captivity to sin and Satan. That's not the case. We know that not all will be saved. And so what this word helps us to understand is that all here means all without distinction. All of the many. He paid a price and he will get what he paid for. And if he paid for the entire human race, he will have the entire human race around his throne. It's a sure ransom price. But we know in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, that heavenly scene where we see saints around the throne singing, angels singing, saying, Worthy are you, speaking of the Lamb, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Why are they there? Because he paid for them. He didn't make them redeemable. He didn't make them ransomable, and then they did the rest. He paid for them. This has huge implications, even in our pursuit of holiness. Paul says, you are not your own. Why? Because you were bought with a price. Those who go to hell, they were not bought. Otherwise, they would have been united to Christ. They would have been liberated from the slave market of sin and death. Those for whom the Son pays for, those for whom the Son pays, He gets. He releases them from their bondage. Number three, not only to save and to redeem his purpose behind the cross work of Christ, the Father's purpose was to expiate, to remove sin. When John the Baptist saw Jesus there by the water, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who, what? Takes away the sin of the world. Some universalist is going to come along and say, well, see, it says world. Well, then, okay, universalist, tell me how he takes away the sin of the world. Well, he, he, you know, he, he made a way for the sin of the world to be taken away, but that's not what the text says. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You can have your universalism. I'll take that as people from all tribes and languages and nations and tongues, not just Israel. To expiate Every priest, Hebrews 10 says, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, expiation. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He took away sin. He perfected his people. He appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9, 26. Number four, he came to save. He came to redeem, pay the ransom price, to release his captives, to release his people. He came to expiate, remove their sin. And he came, fourthly, to propitiate the wrath of God, to satisfy the demands of God's wrath. To be the sponge that absorbs the entirety of divine fury. Romans 3.25, God put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Hebrews 2.17, that says Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make 
propitiation for the sins of the people. He came to satisfy God's wrath for his people, to absorb it, to remove it, to take it upon himself and to avert it from you. If he did that for the world, then there will be no wrath poured out on the day of judgment. Payment cannot twice be made. Propitiation cannot twice be made. He either died and suffered your wrath, or you will experience that wrath justly, deservingly, in hell. 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Again, an Arminian or a provisionist can come and say, see, he's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Okay, then everyone without exception will enter into glory and will not experience the wrath of God. Well, no, 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 no. It means to make a way for propitiation to be experienced. He made a way for the wrath of God to be propitiated. But that's not what it says. He is the propitiation. He is the sacrifice that averts the wrath of God for the sins of the whole world. So either that means that everyone in the world will experience God's grace in glory, And hell will be empty because he's already drained the wrath of God for even unbelievers, all the world. Well, you know, he made a way to just... What are you trying to do here? He is the wrath absorber for all of his people from every nation, all tribes, all tongues. He's the propitiation for our sins. We know that it can't mean all without exception because it says propitiation. It can't mean all without exception because he is the propitiation for all for whom he died. Number five, what was his purpose? It was to reconcile sinners to God. It wasn't merely to make them reconcilable, to put them in a position where they now can be Reconciled and brought back to God if they use their almighty free will. No, he came to actually reconcile sinners to God. And he did that by his death. Romans 5.10, we often overlook it. Notice the preciousness of this. Just, just listen to this. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, what reconciled us? This death of the Son of God. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. God's purpose behind the death of Christ was to actually reconcile sinners, not merely to make them reconcilable. Some might say, gosh, man, you're, you're splitting hairs here. You're, you're getting all heated for things that really don't matter. Oh, they do matter. Because one view says soli deo gloria. The other view says lip service, solely deo gloria, but inwardly believes that they did the rest, that they contributed the final touches to really add the saving power to the death of Christ by their faith. 2 Corinthians 5.18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, God, Christ, God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the, ministry, the message of reconciliation. God was in Christ at the time of his death, reconciling the world to himself. So either that means everyone will be reconciled or world means all without distinction. All people from, or people from all around the world, from every tribe, nation, language, tongue. You have to remember that according to Romans chapter 11, as I noted last time, the word world was often used synonymously with Gentile. Peoples of the world, Gentile peoples. It was to reconcile. That was his purpose. That he might reconcile us, Jew and Greek, both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do you see what we're saying here this morning? He did not just come to make us savable. He came by his death to save us. He did not just come to make us redeemable. He actually paid the lutron. He paid the price to liberate us from our bondage. It's glorious. He didn't just come to make a way for us to be reconciled. No, by his death, he actually reconciled us to God. That's the first answer to the first question. What was the purpose of God behind the cross work of Christ? To save, to redeem, to propitiate, to expiate, to reconcile us to God. Last question for the remainder of our time. Now, what was the divine accomplishment resulting from the death of Christ? We've seen his purpose. His purpose was to save and redeem. What did he actually accomplish, though? Because we've already established whatever he purposes must be accomplished without fail, with absolute perfection. If God purposed to propitiate his own wrath in the sacrifice of his son, did that actually happen? Yes. For everyone without exception? No. For all without distinction? Yes. Yes. What actually resulted from the death of Christ? Number one, redemption, right? This might seem repetitive, but if he purposed to redeem, then he actually redeemed. If he purposed to expiate and remove our sins, then by his sacrifice, he actually put away sin, Hebrews 9.26. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. By his wounds, we have actually been healed. Not by his wounds, God will provide a means for anyone and all and anyone to be healed if they want to. No, friends, by his wounds, he healed you, his elect, his people, and he will glorify you in the end. What else did he actually accomplish through the cross? Well, our definitive sanctification, our once and for all being set apart for God. He accomplished that by the cross. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. We have been sanctified through the body of Jesus Christ, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. You, you see that? By his death, he actually set you apart for his father forever. Forever. Definitive sanctification. Once and for all, you've been set apart 
as God's possession. He actually reconciled us, as we've seen. He didn't just intend to reconcile us. He actually accomplished our reconciliation. He didn't just intend to save us. He actually saved us. The grace of God appeared, Titus 2 says, bringing salvation to all men. To all men. And I know that non-particularists will seize that verse and say, see, it says all men. But then what does the text go on to say? Training us. That grace trains us to turn from our ways as we look to the Lord Jesus Christ who made us his own particular, peculiar people. What else did the death of Christ actually accomplish? It accomplished our regeneration. John 6.33 says that he came down from heaven to give life to the world. By his sacrifice, he gives life to the world. It doesn't say he provided a means for the world to become alive. No, as I read earlier, he brought life and death. He, brought, he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through his gospel. What brought life to who? To his people. Those the Father gave him. What else did he accomplish through the death of Christ? Our justification. We were justified by God's grace as a gift through the propitiation of Christ. He actually justified us by his death. And this was foretold even by the prophet Isaiah. This is not just New Testament theology. We see in the Old Testament that the many would be justified by the knowledge of Yahweh's servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. He actually adopted us by his death. Galatians 4, 5. God sent forth the Spirit, sent forth the Son, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. He actually, by his death, brought us in, adopted us. You say, well, we had to add our part, though. Faith. That's not your part. It's a gift. You are God's workmanship. It's a gift. Two more. What else did he actually accomplish? Regeneration? Adoption? He actually accomplished our progressive sanctification. 1 John 1 7 says that the blood of Jesus, the Son, cleanses us from all sin. Hebrews 9 14 says the blood of Christ, through the eternal Spirit, he offered himself without blemish to God to cleanse your consciences from dead works to serve the living God. You walking around, being cleansed continually, growing in your love, Christ purchased that for you. He didn't just make it possible. He's actually at work in you to will and work for his good pleasure. And number 10, what else did Christ actually accomplish for those for whom God intended the cross to accomplish this for? Glorification. Glorification. Hebrews 2.10 says that Christ's saving death occurred so that God could bring many sons 
to glory. He gave his life in order that many sons would be brought to glory. What God intends and what God actually accomplishes are one and the same. He didn't just intend to provide salvation for everyone. Now, do, are we called to preach the gospel to everyone? Yes, that's a non-negotiable. But we know that not all are chosen. We know that the Father has given some, and there are many, obviously, to the Son. And the Son came and purchased them. He paid the ransom price that they might be released from captivity to sin. For Christ not to get what he paid for is for Christ's purposes to fail. For Christ not to get what he purchased would be for God's almighty purposes to be thwarted. And we preach no such gospel. We know these things will come to pass. There are many who believe that Christ came simply to provide salvation, to provide propitiation, to provide redemption, to make a way for reconciliation to be made possible to any and all who would make use of it by their almighty free will. There are people who believe that. But you have to insert that into Scripture. You have to insert that provisional language into the Bible because the Bible talks about it in terms of absolute accomplishment. By his death, he reconciled sinners to God. He is the propitiation for our sins. He will save his people from their sins. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many, he says. But the scriptures present a perfect atonement that actually saves all for whom it was intended. An atonement that in no way requires man's contribution or final touches in order to activate its power or to realize God's saving purposes. It's not saving faith that activates the power of the cross. Rather, it's the saving efficacy of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ that activates saving faith in the elect. You see, we think, so many people think that, okay, it is a perfect sacrifice, but you have to, you know, give it its power by contributing your faith to it. Receiving it. Friends, it's the cross that actually brings about the saving faith and Godward repentance in all of God's elect. It's a perfect sacrifice that requires no final touches. When he said it is finished, redemption was accomplished, not merely provided. Salvation was accomplished, not simply made available. And that guaranteed that one day you would be brought into union with Christ because the Father who sent the Son would then later send His Spirit to regenerate and awaken all those and only those that the Father had given to the Son and that the Son paid for in His death. Trinitarian salvation. The unity of the Trinity demands a particular definite atonement the purposes of God to actually save a people, purposes that cannot be thwarted, 
demands that Christ died for all those that the Father gave him. Father, this morning we celebrate your goodness in not simply dropping a life down, a lifeline down to us. We wanted nothing to do with you. And worse, we, we were not drowning in a sea of sin, treading water. Your word tells us that we were dead and we needed life. Your word tells us that you sought us and you saved us. We thank you for the perfect price that was paid to guarantee our liberation from sin and death and Satan. I pray that you would continue by and through your people in the Great Commission to acquire and lay hold of everything the Son purchased. It's rightly his. It must go to him. It must belong to him. And so for those who are paid for and yet don't know it yet, I pray that you would awaken them to see and savor the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who came to give his life as a ransom for his people. We pray that you would get in us what you are worthy of. Help us to remember that we are not our own. We were bought with a price. We were bought. We didn't buy ourselves. We didn't put ourselves into a position where we could be bought. No, you bought us. As Acts 20 says, the church of God, which you purchased with your blood. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we depart this morning, leave you with these words from Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Have a blessed week.